He was never tempted to stay in Europe and enjoy the comfort of life there. His ultimate goal was to return to his people and use his talents in music and poetry in order to give his people a taste of culture and an appreciation of higher human values found in works of art and, and music. Oh, let me on your bosom fall, Nineveh, queen of earth all, so that from your soil I inhale a little strength for my spirit wan and frail. Let me at your ruins warmly gaze, sacred fountains with burning lips embrace. Let me wash them with my tears and trace and read the greatest love of all. Old stone, do tell me the story, tale of light and glory, Perchance my weary heart waken, perchance fear from my being is shaken. You that nursed heroes on your breast, they tell me I too am with the emblem blessed. Let blood in my veins stir to unrest, blood of the almighty Autor. Hearken to decree maternal, dwellers of mount and plain, to unite in bond eternal for revival of the old cause and old aim. Proclaim to all the children of my son, on the site of old Nineveh, build a new one. Whenever weary to my arms run, your strength, your zeal to restore. Welcome everybody to episode 192 of the Assyrian Podcast. I am your host, Odessa, and I wanted to approach today's episode a little differently than other episodes. Because we're a stateless people, which makes it difficult to have established schools with cohesive curriculum across the board that ensure students are taught about certain subjects and people in our history, a lot of what we end up knowing about our own history is either what is passed down to us from our parents or family members, or usually later on in our own search. A lot gets lost in that process, and as you can imagine, that also means each person's understanding of their own history will be a little different. For today's episode, I wanted to highlight the life and legacy of someone from the past. Some might be familiar with the name, some might already know everything that is mentioned in this episode, but most will be hearing about this man for the first time. He is a prominent Assyrian composer, poet, writer, and a social reformer who lived between 1903 and 1988 in the three continents of Asia, Europe, and North America. He has published several musical pieces, some of which are the most famous Assyrian folkloric compositions, and has created the greatest epic of the 20th century in the Assyrian language. His name is William Daniel. The words that I recited in the beginning are to a song by the name of Nineveh, written and composed by William Daniel and translated in English by him as well. Born in 1903, William Daniel experienced and witnessed many sufferings during his life, from his parents passing away at a young age to living through and surviving the 1918 Assyrian genocide, to love and heartbreak. In the words of Dr. Ariane Shaya in his Zinda magazine publication, William Daniel lived most of his life as a lonely, unappreciated artist. He was hurt deeply, but never wavered in his love for his people. His lifelong goal was to serve and uplift his people. In the dedication page of his publication, William Daniel's Creations, he writes, I dedicate this publication to the altar of the glory of a nation that was. Many tears have been shed for its present predicament. The foremost yearning and hope is to return to an age of understanding, educational attainment, and intellectual revitalization. This hope is my only consolation. 
To conduct this interview, I reached out to Dr. Ariane Shaya, who is the author of the book, William Daniel, Portrait of an Assyrian Icon. It is my hope that through this interview, we can commemorate the life of someone who dedicated their life to the advancement of the Assyrian people. Dr. Ishaya, could you start off with the beginning of William Daniel's life, where he was born and raised? Uh, what year was he born? Many people think that he was born in Urmia. That is not the case. He was actually born in Savuchbulak, modern-day Mahabad. Uh, this is Iran, in 1903. His father, was Dr. David Daniel, was a physician, and he had a clinic in that, that town, in partnership with another Assyrian physician, uh, his name was Hakim Yonatan Bwazirawa. This was uh, basically a Kurdish town, and these were the only two Assyrian families there. William Daniel had four sisters and one brother. His mother's name was Ashley. Unfortunately, she passed away when he was only five years old. So his father sent all the children to Urmia, in the care of his paternal uncle, where he began to attend the American Mission School. But his memories of Savuj Bulag are very endearing to him because his father had this big house, like an orchard on the hillside. And in the evening, the Kurdish dignitaries would come and they would bring musicians with them. Shabiba, which is a kind of flute, and the dumbak, which is a kind of drums. And they would sing and perform Kurdish songs. And these Kurdish songs, as you know, are somewhat similar to the Assyrian mountain songs. So these tunes were deeply imprinted in his memory. I remember reading in in the biography of his life that he, he himself was 15 years old when Raqqa Raqqa began, the Seifo began, and they were forced to flee. Is that correct? Yes. What happened is that in 1918, the family was living in Urmia, and his uh, sister, older sister, Katie, she was married to an Assyrian man by the name of Luther. And Luther decided to leave and run away from Urmia all by himself. And by that time, Katie had a two-year uh, son. And as his wife, she was kind of disappointed that Luther was abandoning her and leaving her behind. So she pleaded with him. She said, at least take William with you. He agreed. And this way, Katie saved her brother's life. Wow. And during this period, all the Assyrians that were in Urmia were massacred. The William sisters were taken by the Kurds to Salamas, a village in the north side of Urmia. They were taken to Salamas to work the fields as slaves. Katie and her son died there, but no one knows what happened to his other sisters. During the flight from Urmia, he witnessed horrible scenes of people being shot and killed in front of his eyes, babies left on the roadside. It was a traumatic experience for a 15 years old boy, and these experiences 
develop a strong sense of compassion for his people, and he called them our orphaned people. Do we know where Luther and William went? Luther um, first went to Baghdad, and after some years in Baghdad, Luther went to Marseille, France, because in Marseille, there was a large population in transit to the United States. There were about 200 to 250 Syrians in Marseille. But William stayed back in Iran, and he found a job with the British Petroleum Company in Hamada, and he started working there. And since he had no family, a half Armenian family adopted him. And they became his adopted parents there for the while that he was working in Hamada. How did he then begin to develop an interest and a love of music? Well, uh, as I said, when he was just a little boy, he had heard these Kurdish tunes that had left a good impression on him. But when he went to Urmia and started primary school at the American Mission, he won a lottery. He won a violin in a, in a school lottery. And so maybe, you know, this started him. But his serious interest in music developed when he was in Basra because he moved to Basra with the British Petroleum Company and he continued his job there with that company. And um, over there, uh, he met an Indian and he learned uh, how to play violin with this Indian teacher. And so he joined an Armenian group that was there, musical group, and they started playing popular tunes uh, to the public. Uh, however, what determined William Daniel's purpose in life to become a composer and conduct his own symphony orchestra was the composer Raphael Belik. He was the conductor of the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra, and William Daniel got some of his records and he would listen to them. Basra, for listeners that might not be familiar geographically where that's located, that's located in the south of Iraq. I'm curious, during that time, were the borders between Iraq and Iran quite porous? People could kind of move back and forth between countries and, and it wasn't really seen as a big deal? It wasn't seen as a big deal. And also, it was easy for William Daniel, when he decided to continue his musical uh, education to go to Marseille. It was very easy for him to get a passport. And so he went to Marseille and there he enrolled in the Conservatory of Music of Marseille and started taking uh, different composition, instrumental playing, and that conservatory. His mentor's name was Edward Aguiton. And under his guidance, he came, he, he participated in a musical violin contest and uh, actually he came the third among a large number of uh, participants and contestants there. And so this was in Marseille. I also understand that he had attended one of the top conservatories 
in the world in um, in Basel, Switzerland. Is that correct? Yes, because he was very successful, paved the way for him to transfer to the Conservatory of Music in Basel. But I need here to mention something about what happened in Marseille. Yes. It was in Marseille that he discovered that he had a talent for writing and for poetry. And it was there that he translated Moliere's comedy Le Médecin Malgré Lui, and this is um, in English, it translates to the doctor in spite of himself. He translated that into Assyrian and began to stage plays or give concerts to the Assyrians in Marseille. Do you know how or when he learned to read and write in Assyrian? Yes, in the mission school in Urmia, he learned to read and write in Assyrian. Also, for high school, he was in Tabriz, and in Tabriz also, he uh, Secondary, he attended secondary school and improved his competence in the Assyrian language, both reading and, and writing and composition. Okay, and so during his time in, in school, he had really developed uh, his talent unintendedly as a poet, as a writer, and, and helping to translate some things that could be translated into Assyrian and performed in the arts in Assyrian. That's true. And then when he was in Basel, he didn't give up on his reading of poetry. He came across a play that was truly influenced him. It was um, Cyrano de Bergerac. He translated that play from French into Assyrian at that time. Do we have records of any of these plays that are maybe not recording necessarily, but the writings of them? Yes, actually, I had the original uh, manuscript of Cyrano de Bergerac, and I um, uh, offered that to the Assyrian American Association of San Jose. I didn't think it was my right to keep it as a personal possession. It belongs to the Assyrian people. So I, I gave it to them. And we also uh, have a typewritten manuscript of this, uh, of Cyrano de Bergerac, uh, that uh, Ramin Daniel, a dedicated Assyrian young man, he's the one who decided to, uh, at his own expense uh, to um, get copies of it because my brother, Dr. Ashur Murad Khan, I gave him the handwritten manuscript and he typed that up for us. And then Ramin Daniel made some copies of that. Are those copies available to the public? Not to the public, but they can be made public because I do have a copy of that manuscript. Uh, some years ago, I asked, I don't want to name the association, but I asked an association to actually public print and publish Cyrano de Bergerac in Assyrian, but they did not. Okay, so maybe that's something that could happen in the in the near future, especially if we have something that we can make a copy from it. We have the original. Definitely. Yes, we can. And my brother's hand, and I also have the handwritten uh, manuscript, his handwritten. My brother gave it to me, copy. During that time, was it common for people to attend universities outside of Iran? Very few. Very few. There were some, but they were very few. Uh, William Daniel mastered several languages during his lifetime, wherever he lived. Kurdish, Turkish, uh, Assyrian, Persian, French, German. And um, he became a really accomplished violinist under the guidance of his mentor in Basel. His mentor was a very well-known musician by the name of Fritz Herber. 
he was, although he could have stayed as a very accomplished violinist and live an easy life, he was never tempted to stay in Europe and enjoy the comfort of life there. His ultimate goal was to return to his people and use his talents in music and poetry in order to give his people a taste of culture and an appreciation of higher human values found in works of art and, and music. I'm really impressed by his ability to attend the top conservatory in the world during that time, especially given some of the tragedies that had happened in his early childhood that could negatively impact somebody's life. But rather than heading in that route, he took it to the other end of being able to create a life that is worth admiring. And then even more so for him to then go to returning back to Iran because he saw a need to take the talents that he had learned to then bring back to his people. Um, I think his role model was uh, his father. His father was a dedicated Assyrian. During World War I, he um, gave all his money to the refugees to be fed. The people had to sit and sleep on wet grounds. He had 15 very expensive Persian rugs. Put them, he gave them all into the commission. Uh, to put them out uh, under people so that they could sleep and sit on them. And um, as a physician, he day and night he was in the hospital taking care of, uh, of the sick Assyrians uh, you know, who had gathered and piled up there. And uh, it was there that he got typhoid and he died along with his with the people who were sick and he was attending. So William Daniel uh, had his father as a role model and he really, his heart was broken for his people, the way they suffered. He wanted to do something to uplift them. And that's exactly what he did. So upon his return to Iran, I mean, could you paint a picture for listeners? What was going on in Iran during that time? What was the state of Assyrians? And what did he start with when he returned back? He returned back with his wife. He had fallen in love with a girl by the name of Natalie. He married her and he told her in no uncertain terms that he was not staying. So she agreed to return with him. So in 1936, he returned with his wife to Iran. Iran. And uh, at that time, uh, most of the Assyrians had uh, started moving out of small towns, out of villages, and uh, coming to Tehran because there they could find jobs and there was a university there where the young men could attend. So when he got there, he started giving uh, private English lessons or private violin lessons. But he was very disappointed to see that his people were not really interested in classical music. They were not really interested to learn the Assyrian language. You know, his goal was to go there and establish schools, establish uh, schools for music, for, for lang Assyrian language, give concerts, uh, introduce literature and plays to people. But... The people were not interested. That was just above their level of interest. And that kind of smashed all his dreams. Do you think that could have been because of what had happened to the Assyrians around that time? And that's still holding kind of fresh memories and scars, as well as, I'm not sure, how what was the level of exposure to classical music to Assyrians, at least in Iran during that time? 
yeah, the, they were not ready for that yet. Mm -hmm. They were not ready for that. I know I read um, in the early 1940s that he had founded the first Assyrian musical and dance group, which performed some of the musical compositions and songs that he had created. Um, yes, what happened is that it came, uh, it was a very pleasant surprise when William Daniel heard that a prominent Assyrian by the name of Shidrak Ebazadeh had made a contract with uh, Radio Iran for a half hour weekly program in Assyria. And so he hired William Daniel and gave him a 15 minutes uh, music slot in that program. And so William Daniel at that time started forming a choir, composing songs week after week. And so he started both airing them uh, in the radio and also started giving musicals, uh, musical plays and concerts to the Assyrian public. His uh, radio program became very popular. Uh, it was heard not only throughout Iran, but as far as Baghdad, Iraq. Oh. So non-Assyrians even loved his songs. So was it a mix of classical music that was, that was in language or languages outside of the Assyrian language, or were they all strictly in Assyrian? Occasionally, he also gave them concerts of classical music from Beethoven, Mozart, and all the well-known Chopin to a wider population, not just Assyrians. These concerts were just for the public in Tehran, Persian-speaking people also attended them. Some Assyrians attended them too. But the most popular concerts that he gave were in Assyrian, and Assyrian, it was strictly for Assyrians, and they were the ones that attended those concerts. And at that time, he also published his very first book of Assyrian songs called Zarirat Umanuta, the Rays of uh, Arts. And uh, now this book has been revised and republished. Uh, more songs have been added to it, and it's called William Daniel's Creations. <laughs> You know, at the time when he was composing music, the Assyrians did not have their own authentic music scores. They they they, they borrowed from the Armenian, from Turkish um, music. William Daniel really researched and found out what are the rhythms of authentic Assyrian music. So he composed his songs on that basis. That is why he kind of revived the Assyrian authentic music. He was very uh, disappointed to see that even though he had made that attempt, even today, very few Assyrian musicians attempt to go follow his path. They're still doing dance music for Chigya rather than music that you can listen to, lyrics that you can listen to that are poetic. Mm. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. I do know what you mean. And I, I yeah. have definitely heard that critique before. You're right. I do remember re reading in, in the biography that his, his two sources of inspiration came from the popular melodies of the mountain or what was called the mountain Assyrians who preserved their 
ancient literary and artistic lore in their in their mountain strongholds and then the liturgical chants of the church of the east dating that's back correct. to the first and century ad so i think that's very unique so we took like folkloric as well as church or liturgical chants to really overlap and help to define the like the original assyrian music that's true yes for the first time he created songs that were not just for dancing they were to sit down listen enjoy the lyrics and feel uplifted emotionally and and get that feeling of national taste that's what what happens to me when i listen to his music i feel i'm a syrian it revives in me that that spirit that feeling he created Katini Gabata or the Epic of Katini Gabata, because I, I remember, I recall when I was reading, the literary quality was considered equal to Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. And I think for many listeners who are not familiar with William Daniel, this will also be a surprise in terms of learning about this, that we have such a thing. I would love to learn what inspired him to create it and how he went about in doing so, he represented different uh, parts of where Assyrians lived, different dialects. So could you talk a little bit more about how uh, the process of how he came to create the epic of Katini Gabara? He had no idea about Katini. What happened is that when he was in Tehran, he was lodging with an Assyrian family who were from the Assyrian mountains. This was a famous um, home of Andrei Gvalovich, his uh, mother, Khatanazi, she was the one who, who used to sing these parts of the Katini epic. And she was the one who introduced him to the epic of Katini. And uh, the legend kind of caught his attention because he realized this must be a very old, ancient Assyrian literary piece that is is dying because it was um, transmitted from generation to generation through word of mouth and uh, large parts of, of it were missing only the popular parts uh, had still survived and people used to to sing them and to recite them so he tried to do some research on that and uh, in sana kermanshah and sana it was a village near kermanshah in Iran. He went there because that was where a lot of Assyrian refugees from the mountains were settled. 
clarify when we say mountains, we're talking about the Hakati Mountains? Yes, yes. You can also call them Assyrian mountains. <laughs> and anyways, um, from there, he, he picked up as many pieces of this legend as he could. And then he, he kind of wove the uh, missing pieces together and he added to it. And uh, he then he created just the heroic epic poem uh, picturing the history of our people with all their sufferings, ups and downs, and their hope of deliverance. And in this process, he re revolutionized the old rhymes and the rhythms of traditional poetry and adorned them with figures of speech like metaphors, similes, allegories, and others, and gave fresh life to a stagnant form of poetry an Assyrian epic poem, and within it, he's weaving the history, the modern history of Assyrians, their problems and their hopes. But he's also reviving and reinventing Assyrian poetry by giving it new forms of rhymes and rhythms. Actually, he was the one who invented the three-syllabic metrical foot which had never been tried by either the old or the contemporary Assyrian poets. Now, the epic of Katina the Great is not only rich in rhythmic variations of its verses, but the verses are also replete with stunning imagery and similes. You know, I don't know how many people have read Katina the Bora, but if you read it, you will see what a literary treasure we Assyrians have. I haven't had a chance to read it in full yet, but I have listened to the audio of it, and I agree. I would even say it definitely requires a full concentration to truly understand because sometimes the words that are used are not such common words that we're used to hearing on an everyday basis, but you can understand by the context of what he's trying to say. Um, and you know what he did, Adesa? Every word that was a little bit difficult, in a footnote, he gives it a simple meaning. Oh, okay. And so another feat of accomplishment in this work is that the epic is actually very easy to read because for generations, Assyrians have shied away from reading and writing their language due to a complicated spelling system inherited from the past. William Daniel uses a phonetic spelling system, which is very user-friendly. And actually what we have done now is that we have revised and written the whole the Katini trilogy in uh, the phonetic 
spelling system that William Daniel uses. Well, William Daniel has immortalized this epic that was that was dying, that was being forgetting. Yeah, I remember a quote from the biography by William Wardan, Edward Odishu, that the epic chain of folk tales recited by the Assyrian storytellers in the mountains of Hakadi and the villages in the plain of Nineveh or Mosul, for as long as anyone can remember, Daniel has taken the core of those tales, embellished them with stylistic, poetic ingenuity, and artistically transformed the tales into a complete epic that is in and of itself an exquisite piece of artistic creation. I think that's a great way of putting it. And it, I mean, it was a lot of work, right? The the work is three volumes, some 6,000 verses. Seven. And, oh, 7,000 verses. Okay. And, and published several years apart. Was this all done while he was in Iran? No. Uh, only the first one, he wrote it in Iran. The, the volume two and three were written in the United States. Okay. So let's talk about that. He, uh, at some point, immigrates from, or he migrates from Iran to the United States. Do you know when he left uh, Iran to head to the United States and what the reasoning of it was? Well, William Daniel uh, left um, Tehran to go to Chicago in 1952. And the reason was that he was all alone in Iran, but had relatives in Chicago, and they urged him to join them. Do you mind if um, I what happened to Natalie, his wife? Natalie separated from him while in the 1940s and returned back to Switzerland. Mm, okay. So he had left there to head to Chicago, and in Chicago, did he have, uh, he had relatives there? Yes. His maternal aunt, Nelly Binyamin, was there and she urged him to go. Um, and did, he didn't even have any children, you know, to form a family with them. So he was all alone. So he went to join his relatives in Chicago. And I understand during his time in Chicago, he also continued to carry on a lot of his work, Assyrian work, in terms of creating language classes. I know he had created a play during that time. Could you talk a little bit more about his time in Chicago? Well, in Chicago, he did several things. Not only he resumed his work on Katini Gabara, he formed a choir and he gave numerous concerts there. He also wrote some um, plays that he staged, and they were mostly comedies. He was a, a language teacher in, in the Assyrian school in Chicago. Uh, he, he taught uh, Assyrian language there. So he was very active. He also um, began to publish um, a critical newsletter. It was titled Mahdiana, The Guardian, or yeah, we can say The Guardian, Mahdiana. And uh, in the meanwhile, uh, he noticed the problems that Assyrians in America had Assyrian Universal Alliance and Assyrian Federation was functioning the way. And um, he wrote a book called Assyrians, Their Problems and the Solution. He wrote it both in English and in Assyrians. And there he suggests very practical steps that Assyrians should take. And just briefly what he says is that our political organizations have lofty goals without having the resources or the manpower. So what he says is that first we have to strengthen ourselves economically, 
and uh, socially from within to create a state within a state with our own economic, social, industrial workforce. So by becoming stronger, we will be better able to have uh, more ambitious goals than the ones that our political organizations have. Because he noticed that the Federation had turned into just a social club, entertainment club, instead of really taking care of the problems, uh, the needs of our people. Right. This book is very important. And I'm so sorry that I don't know if anybody has read this book. Do you know where one could get access to reading it? I know that I have a copy. I don't know who else has one. He used to keep all his books in the house of a friend. And this friend had left them in his basement and the basement was flooded. So all the volumes of Catini and his other books were destroyed that way. Oh my goodness. I wonder, and I, I would love for there to be some sort of way that this kind of work can be made accessible to people so that there is an opportunity for them to read it. Because I know myself, I've been very interested in wanting to to read the book, but there hasn't been a way for me to, let's say, purchase uh, a copy of the book. So maybe there's a way to to scan it and make it available as an ebook or something similar, because I mean, that, that is, I think, important knowledge, even from a historical perspective in terms of understanding what Assyrians were going through during that time in America, in Chicago. Yeah, it's, it's about, it's valuable. It is valuable. To go back really quickly, because I know you were saying with that book, they, he had translated it into two languages for Katini Gabata. I know that it's in the Assyrian language. And I know that sometimes to translate something into another language makes it lose its magic or its ability to translate things in the way that William Daniel, let's say, intended to. But as we continue to grow and be a diasporic community, and I imagine, you know, years from now, whatever, there's going to be a need for all of these Assyrian books that we have out there to have some sort of translation to English. Has that ever been considered? And I know that that would be, I know that this was just recently, you know, made available. So I can imagine it would be a huge undertaking, but I, I, I just have to ask if that has ever been something of uh, consideration so that m- more Assyrians would be able to access or understand the epic. Well, one thing the new generation has to do, and I urge them to do that, is to learn our language and to read it in original. Mm-hmm. But for those who it's impossible for them, they can listen to it. If they cannot read Assyrian, but speak Assyrian, they can listen to it. The audio tapes are available. But even if that is not possible, small attempts have been made to translate parts of uh, the epic, just to give people a taste of them. Um, I have translated uh, some passages I think I put them in the biography that I wrote on William Daniel. Yeah, I I translated a section into English. Also, William Verde, he also has translated some parts of uh, volume one into English, but a complete translation has not been made. Okay. Do you know where the translation of the first 
uh, volume is stored, like where William Berda has, or where those are? In Nineveh magazine, he, he published uh, some parts of it in Nineveh magazine years ago. I can inquire and find out. You know, he passed away, and I don't think he he pursued that attempt. He was very good at that. Unfortunately, um, his, his, he, he wasn't able to finish what he was doing. I know that at some point, William Daniel had then made the move from Chicago to San Jose. Yes. Do you know roughly when that was and what the reasoning for that was? That move was? The reasoning was that he had written volume three of Katina Gabara, and he has sent it um, here to be um, printed, to be typewritten here. And he wanted to be close so that he could check and uh, edit what was being typed. So that's why he moved here to be close to his work. From me, what you have been able to gather um, when you created uh, his biography, what were his pain points or frustrations with the Assyrian nation and how he did he want to fix those? You mentioned some of that during his time in Chicago with regards to the organizations. You mentioned it in Iran in terms of the frustration with Assyrians and their exposure or interest in kind of classical music and in their own reading and writing of their own language. Was there anything else that he, you were able to understand in terms of the, the things that he saw were, you can say, sore points and proposed solutions for them? Well, in terms of um, cultural attainment, he was sure that our musicians are not taking advantage of what he had initiated in creating uh, songs to be listened to, lyrics to be listened to. They were not learning. They were just continuing with their zurna davula, with their uh, uh, dance music. They, they have continued up till today, most of them. In terms of literature, he says, I offer them new ways of doing of writing poetry. I offer them 7,000 verses full of new uh, creations in terms of uh, allegories, in terms of imagery. Uh, they never use them in terms of three metric foot. They never use them because they never read the book. They stagnated, they were stagnating. And that is what was a sore point for William Daniel. When will we progress? Mm. Why are we staying where we are? We, when we are offered the opportunity to better ourselves, why aren't we not doing that? In terms of politics, he was very sore that it was like a power struggle to be the president, to be the vice president was more important than people than just pulling up their slaves and working for the people, trying to be unselfish. His role model was Catini. Catini was, was, was a young man that instead of looking after himself, he, he just wanted to dedicate all his life to the salvation of his people. He, he, he wanted his people to endure, to, to progress. And he wasn't seeing that in our political organizations. Enough of uh, emphasis on entertainment, on annual conventions. Try to build up clinics, try to build up 
employment agencies, try to build up organizations like labor unions to get to, for people to start finding jobs for each other, build industries. None of this was, was happening. And that was a sore point for him. Yeah, I can understand how those would be um, frustrating things for somebody that cares so much about their their nation. I want to sort of end this with William Daniel really, and the reason why I wanted to focus on a, a podcast episode on remembering him and his life and legacy is because for one, I think a lot of people, younger generation may not even be familiar with him, but he was really instrumental in terms of pushing the Assyrian people forward and in a way that was very uh, unique. He had taken his talents and what he was good at and what he was familiar with in order to, you know, move and push our people forward. And those kind of efforts should never be taken lightly or, or be forgotten. And so my question to you is, uh, how should Assyrians remember and honor William Daniel? We can honor him by knowing who he was. Do we really know who he was? The only way to know who he was was to read his books, to be familiar with his music, with his art, with his political perspective. He, he put them all down in writing. So we, we need to, if we want to honor him, we need to know him, then we can honor him. If we don't know him really, we cannot honor someone we don't. So by not reading his books, by not knowing his legacy, we are actually denying his existence. And not only him, but all the other great writers that we have, by not reading what they have, left for us, we are denying their existence. You know, we lament that so many young Assyrians died during the wars, but in a way, by not getting to know the ones that did survive and did have great accomplishments, in a way, we are killing them because we deny their existence as if they, they too had, had died. And this is lamentable. So this is how we can uh, honor our great musicians, our great writers, poets, by getting to know them through their works and try to learn, to learn from them and, and advance our own level of writing and attainment. Yeah, the, I think those are really interesting points. And I think something that we're going to continue to struggle with is this transfer of knowledge from previous years into recent years when it comes to a language barrier. I know there's a consistent effort in terms of language classes that are offered all over the world for those who are interested in learning to read and write. However, it becomes an individual decision if people want to take that up. And denying that then also means denying the ability to read prior books because they were written strictly in the Assyrian language. And so I think that's going to be an interesting um, a problem for us to try to figure out. But I will say that the plus side is that you had created <laughs> or written a book about William Daniel. It's his biography titled William Daniel Portrait of an Assyrian Icon that is in the English language. And it gives a full scope of his entire life in detail. And I think it's written wonderfully. I know that the other ways that I'm 
at least familiar with the way that William Daniels brought up is at times during the performances done at Mesopotamian night and other Assyrian events where his name is dedicated because of a song that is performed, songs that are performed. And many Assyrians today credit uh, Robbie William Daniel for their love of music. I know I've heard in, in different interviews. I, I, I'd also make the argument to you, Dr. Ariane, I don't know if you would agree or not, but I, I propose having some sort of day dedicated to William Daniel, like a William Daniel day, and that really being ways for people to have a better understanding of who this person was, be reminded of them on a year by year basis, and to remember their their legacy and try to uphold some of the the some of the things that they stood for and worked so hard for. Oh, I totally agree with you. That, that's a great idea. Um, you mentioned something about um, language. Um, what I want to add to what you mentioned is that learning language is not only necessary to be able to connect with, with what has been written in Assyrian by our writers, but it's um, also very important for our future because we don't have a country of, of our own. Our identity is only in our language. If we forget our language, we will lose our identity. So uh, as young generation, your generation, I would really advise that one of your primary goals could be to establish language classes, Assyrian language classes for little children so that they will start and, and, give, and please abandon this very cumbersome way of spelling because kids get discouraged and they don't want to read or write anymore. Get this new, we have already published a, a new version of William Daniels' grammar. We have to preserve our identity through our language. I hope you enjoyed the episode. As a part of the outro, in a few moments, you'll hear a segment of William Daniel's speech as he accepts an award in 1986, as well as clips from a few songs written and composed by William Daniel. The first is Marganita, sung by Albert Shabazz. The second is Lullaby, sung by Tina Busada Harrell. And the third is Shara, sung by Walter Aziz. You can find these songs as well as the others in the episode within the episode notes. Thank you and see you next week. خادشنا بجيورة من دعيت ناشي يطيل الكذب خاب الخان ميقرك مغوبهم في الخانوهم بعد قربلي لدو نقشت على جرشلي مري آترايت إديو كتريك وشريكو وداني دكتر أدورت بوليسيان متخري تربونة المدعو سوط آه آغري وخيار دي بد آغم تديان من دنيش شو تاسي شو تابيات الإتلنوية بدخل شو تابيات الإتلنوية هام القربان شتي خمسة وسبعين سنة إلى عبر بيوتا إتوتو إلى الخمسة وأربعين سنة كل شيء تذهبوا لي بمخايرة زموية ألف ناشي بشمت أمتا أطريتا أعد جلوشم خلنا مسكنتنا دمو بسلاينا درباتو يروسنا بشمو بقرائينا بدابوني بمخايينا إيمان تراقينا مارا نمخ بشامو اغلي مارا آسا فراوي لأيشي تخيت الخير لالا وقوم تبياشي لأ 
Shalom, 